My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives, and all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week, and ways you can support us is first, follow our Instagram page, then you can like our Facebook page. And you can listen to this broadcast each week and make comments underneath whatever social media channel you listen to or watch. And you can financially support us, this ministry, through our website, resonatelife.org, under the Give tab. We desire that this be a supplement to your week and this Thursday night not be uh, what you would consider your main body that you connect to. And so we desire you to attend in-person church as well. If you so desire, we want to encourage that in your life and not have this be a replacement. You are joining us live on Thursday night at 8.30 to this podcast. And this will be replayed as a part of our Sunday morning broadcast. So each Thursday night, we come together for this a better understanding of the material that we're covering. We call this a deeper dive. And so if you've been following us, we are now in a new topic for one week, and that subject is power. Next week, we start our series Atlas of the Heart, which that is based off of Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, of course. I'm using that as a structure And we're looking at the biblical ideas and the biblical principles of connection and the language of human emotion. And we're going to walk through that for a handful of weeks. So we're very excited for that series. I am joined today with uh, Sherea Bonner and Jake Flew. Those are two of my leaders at Resonate. Good evening, Jake and Sherea. Good evening, Kevin. Hello. Awesome. So today we are, well, how are you first before we jump in? Sorry, I just got back from a trip. I did. I saw some dinosaurs. You saw some dinosaurs. So the question is, are you an evolutionist? And yeah. yeah. And can you (laughs) be an evolutionist and be a Christian at the same time? Yeah, I think so. I think you can too. I sure hope so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think evolution and scripture actually marry itself. What was really interesting here recently is uh, they found that uh, that the Neanderthal and Homo sapiens, the original Neanderthal and uh, ancient human Homo sapiens, roamed the earth in the same regions at the same time. They discovered that little fact. And so I thought that was really interesting new discovery for um, the week. They, they all, they thought that homo sapiens actually killed off or overpowered the Neanderthal. And that's why the Neanderthal died out quickly. Um, but that is just not true. They lived amongst each other for a period of time, actually for a long period of time. Anyway, science stuff is is really good, but I am a uh, open theist and an open theism. We always try to reconcile science with spirituality. And that's just another little tidbit of 
of goodness. All right, but today we're talking about power. And this subject is really important in today's day and age where we are dealing with power struggles. And when I think about power right now, I think about world powers and how world powers are in conflict. Let's say Russia and Ukraine. Those are two very large, powerful, one seemingly more powerful than the other, although one is making ground seemingly more powerful than the other. So power doesn't necessarily mean population of people or size of country. There's a lot to the psychology of power and the, uh, the aesthetic of power and also the presence of power. So there is a lot to power that doesn't necessarily just mean world power. It doesn't mean national power. It doesn't necessarily mean leader power, or let's say presidential congressional type power or church leader power or organizational leader power. It could be individual power as well. And so this weekend, we're actually going to spend some time in our sermon time live on the subject of power, and Sheree is going to lead us and preach us through that. And so we are excited about that upcoming Sunday morning. The next week then is Easter week. And so we are preparing for Atlas of the Heart Thursday night of Easter week is when we start the discussion on the first emotion or the first series of emotions, I should say. All right, let's get into it. Are we ready? Yeah. I'm ready. Okay. Philippians. That's where we're going to read. That's where we're going to start. So Philippians, go ahead, Jake, and take off with the book of Philippians. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any sharing in the spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united, and agreeing with each other. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, Think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he, he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, under the earth, might bow and every, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Awesome. So let's do a quick word study on humility. Can we look up that word humble or humility taking on the attitude of Christ in humility? Can we look that up in the Greek there quickly throw that up on uh, my yeah, Greek scholars? Well, let's do this. Sorry. I was not prepared for this. Forgive me. Improv. That's it. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going backwards because of Hebrew. That's funny. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, that's not the one I thought it was going to be. What did you think it was going to be? I think I thought it was going to be prouse. 
yeah. meek, like in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Mm. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. To depress figuratively, to humiliate in the condition of heart, a base, bring low, or humble self. So oftentimes we think okay. of humiliate as a bad thing, but this is actually like in a positive. Can we talk about that just for a second? Like what, what are we seeing here? It was I, a self-decision. Yeah. I think that is, is to abase or bring low for yourself. To put yourself but on I also think when we look at the, the passion accounts and how Jesus was treated, I mean, it, it is pretty humiliating being spat on, being publicly whipped. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's the Greeks got it. Okay. Well, we're starting out with a premise on the idea of power mm-hmm. with this quote. And this quote is actually from Sharia Bodner, our very own. When we feel threatened, we engage power. When we feel threatened, we engage power. True, not true. That's what I want to know first. True, not true. Well, I sure hope it's true because that's what my sermon is about. <laughs> we got to debunk it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, all sermons can fall apart. So sure. I let's think find the end true. game here. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, do you, what do you mean by power? Let's start um, there. Yeah. I, at a very base level, it means like the ability to do something or the ability to um, control someone else's behavior or the outcome of events. One more okay. time. Um, the ability to do something or the ability to control um, someone else's behavior or the outcome of events. So power is control. Has the elements of to. control. Yeah, it has elements of control. And then what I heard you say is that it's almost a control of another person. Can be. Is it also autonomous? Like you're you have the power to control yourself? I think so. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk about that personally. What ways when we feel threatened? Do we engage power? Like what, what is some personal reflection on that? Like, how do we do that? When somebody leaves you a passive aggressive note and you want to leave one back or, you know, bring you write an all email and erase it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think silence yeah. is a form of power. Like when we go silent. Mm-hmm. Or um, stoicism. Right. Stoicism is a form of engaging a certain power. But honestly, stoicism is uh, not necessarily a bad thing. I know it's it has bad connotations to it because that usually means an emotionless person. So, but stoicism in, in like common speak, but in, in 
the the literal idea of stoicism is the idea that you're in control of your emotional expression or your emotional reaction. So you engage mm-hmm. just shutting your mouth. So mm-hmm. that's actually healthy, which is yeah. powerful, right? Uh, which e- is powerful. Equanimity but- is that the word? What? Equanimity is that the word? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's something that I have not mastered whatsoever in my life. (laughs) (laughs) So I would say that stoicism is a form of engaging power, I guess, in a positive way. So so we're speaking Mm -hmm. about power in a negative way. But could there be issues of power or expressions of power in positive, like I just mentioned there? I do think so. Yeah. and I mean, I think that's that's what we see in the uh, Philippians passage that we that we just read. Mm. That that Jesus made a choice um, yeah. to be treated the way he was treated. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jake, you want to add in there something? I struggle with the word control. Why? I think when when you feel threatened, your, your amygdala or your, your limbic system kind of flares up. Yeah. Did we lose Kevin fully? And when, when we feel threatened, we're, our, our amygdala or the limbic system flares up. And so we have the, the flight or fight mentality. Mm-hmm. And so when I was just roasting, I had to take I, I off saw my that, yes. It's a warm day. Yeah, it's 80 degrees it, almost. And so oftentimes when you feel threatened is when your prefrontal cortex shuts down. Mm-hmm. And so you actually lose power. Right. Some people mm-hmm. for the, for the common speaker, it would be your reptilian brain or right. your alligator brain. Yeah, your amygdala oblongata. <laughs> um, yeah. But the, uh, that's off of Waterboy. Um, oh. That's old. They're really old. That, but is, the, that just dated you. That just dated you. I was in middle school then, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Defend yourself. <laughs> so I, I struggle with the idea of, I think if you are well adjusted and, and you have a very high EQ, emotional quotient, emotional intelligence. I think you can have control. And I think that's, that's the purpose of it. That you, when, when you feel threatened, where do you go? We're going to talk about that next series, especially. Mm-hmm. And so I would just push back on the idea that maybe it's not control, but it's, it is the, the power of autonomy is more expressed. Make sense? It does. I think when we get to the end and, and start to talk about Sabbath, I want to come back to that because I have a thought, but I don't okay. want to give the thought away just yet. Good. Okay. I think they, that it's a nuance and it's... It's a nuance, but it's not a nuance. So I yell, okay? I don't yell that loud, but my voice raises 
when I feel threatened. So I speak, which is a, a lack of, I guess, stoicism, a lack of control. Yet, if I'm engaging stoicism to control myself versus to control manipulation versus autonomy right one is manipulative one is not manipulative i'm just trying to figure out my headspace so i can have a i can conjugate sentences together and not flip my lid right so (laughs) so so i would say that control many times in our speak had you know you're controlling or you're a control freak we have very negative ideas but if you are trying to control yourself that's different versus to control mm-hmm. so there's a nuance there uh and then there's not a nuance because there's two different forms distinct forms of control one is a sense of of resistance and the other one is a sense of of manipulate manipulation resistance for my own health and the health of another person, which is a form of love. I guess you could say it that way. So I like to go back to, because you're my anedric threatened reaction to control and put that on manipulation is to go silent, stoic, and to, to be the most, emotionless person in the room so that <laughs> that's that is that is a, a form of of my when I get threatened what I do and what you're saying Kevin is that you you talk or you over talk right so sure. are both are both the same is your over talking not a lack of control but the fight for controlling the like airspace well, I guess when it comes to like a power play, you know, I can. Hmm. I guess I guess you're right. Yes, you would be right there because both could be a form of manipulation. Yeah. So if mm-hmm. like you, if you feel so threatened that you want to dictate the end of this time together and you're just going to talk the entire time so that so that it has to move or yeah. I don't say anything. So there is no movement. So I have dictated right. the end of our time together. Well, the extroversion of, of control or power, right. Is always seen in a pot more positive sense than a negative sense. So if you think about like just powerful people name off a president, the ones that didn't talk, didn't succeed the ones that talked talk right got big followings right so the <laughs> powerful leaders the ones that actually just fill the air shows they, the power of rhetoric yeah they clinton the room you know just talking or they what's another one that talked a lot nixon talked a lot you know like we have presidents that talked and talked and talked and talked and got huge followings. Um, 
but you know, Carter was pretty silent. And so he's thought of as kind of the <laughs> presidential dud, right? Probably so the best, uh, the best one the, ever. Probably the best one ever. Yeah. So you think about powerful people, um, the, the powerful people that are out there, extroversion, verbose manipulation is seen as, as a positive thing mm-hmm. versus a neuroticism which introversion is not necessarily a distinct personality trait. It's more of a nuance of many personality traits. It's an expression of many personality traits, or it sits an opposite of another personality trait. So introversion in a sense has a, in our culture has a negative connotation. It's like, why aren't you talking? Speak Um, up speak up you know we have have this like negative thought but honestly one is essential for the other one to exist (laughs) so so, i mean if you just look at it that that way uh if you just look at it that way but but both can be i'm not saying i'm not saying extroversion or introversion is a is a power play the expression of it, though, can be a power play. Mm-hmm. Right. I would agree with that. So it's a nuance of that idea of control. It'd be interesting to do another series on, on controlling. <laughs> the idea of controlling within, within power. Okay, so Sheree, how do you engage? So you answer that. when. So Jake... Yeah becomes the most emotionless person in the room and I become the most emotional person in the room. So where do you fall? Somewhere yeah. in the middle. <laughs> no, no, no wouldn't that be the equanimity? No, I, I definitely fall more towards Jake on that one. See, I think I have a I, sickness. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> yes. I go cold. Both can be narcissistic. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because withholding is not kind. I mean, but, like, but like, I, went, I mean, if you want to go like true terms, I don't When I, don't I say know. narcissistic, I, I should, the truest sense of narcissism would be the love of self. The love mm-hmm. of self. And so when you can control a room, by being stoic, or I can control a room by being loud, uh, both. And then we, you know, kind of like have a fantasy of that, of self in that. That's when we definitely can broach narcissism. Mm -hmm. That's great. Okay. Well, let's talk about the church then. Because that's yeah. really our context uh, when it comes to, because all three of us are leaders of some kind. We're seen as leaders. We engage in leadership activities. Uh, we do hold, like this weekend, we're holding an equality of positional power, Right. So like somebody else's because some preachers won't give up their pulpit because of a power issue. 
um, I have no problem. Please take it. <laughs> so, so, uh, so the idea of like the, the idea of power in the church usually resides with that exercise of preaching or a group mm-hmm. or a council, a college of elders um, resides within like a handful of people. Uh, so, so how does, how does a church engage in power? Like what are some of the challenges there? Describe, describe the church's power. I had been thinking of this a little bit more broadly um, than you just proposed. And I think both are, are important to well, examine. Let's, let's go yours, yours first. Start broad first. Yeah. Um, the alignment of quote unquote Christian values with uh, political values. Um, Christian nationalism. Yeah. Christian nationalists want power. They want to determine how everything in the country is going to go for everybody. Yeah. Jake mentioned something to me the other day about how uh, a lot of the power plays that we've experienced in our, in our communities and Mm -hmm. in our state, when it comes to like anti-mask, anti-vax have been from Christian people. And they, since now there's no mandates, they all like went away. They all went silent again because they don't stand out of the crowd. They're not like all, all the not, crazies are hidden again. Yeah, all the crazies yeah. are hidden. So now we don't know who's trying to pull the power play um, because they're not like usurping authority by, you know, not wearing a mask and standing up for their national rights or something like that, that we've heard many, right. many times. So so uh, we don't see them, but honestly, a lot of Christians got wrapped up into that mm-hmm. Christian national and have been wrapped up into this Christian nationalistic idea, but also like incredibly political in position and in engagement. It's really mm-hmm. a strange time. Yeah. For that. And with this being a midterm year, I don't, the crazies are still out there. Yeah. <laughs> you just can't see them like, because they're all, right. We're all not wearing masks. <laughs> we're we're watching a video series in our community group about Christian nationalism. Ooh. And it? um, it's off of uh, work of the people. I'm not sure oh, nice. is it hmm. the title of the yeah. You're fine. The series, uh, but R- Brian Zond was the the mm-hmm. first speaker, and talks about Christian nationalism that when you, when you go to a church and you see a flag pull out front mm-hmm. and take away all of your connotations of what you think of the Christian flag, um, it has a lots of baggage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to take away all of that, but just say what purely stands for the kingdom of heaven, the, the church universal Christians, it just stands for all of that. It's, it's a multinational, multi-bordal, multicultural, multi-ethnic group. What would happen in flag code or in your state watch this, yeah. mm-hmm. is if you flip the American flag and the Christian flag on the, the same flag always goes on top, right? 
Christian I mean, flag. the American flag always goes on. The American top. flag always goes on top. What happens if you switch that? Mm-hmm. People will not be comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And so that is where that is where our impure symbols, because that's what flags are, pure symbols. Right. right. That's where our allegiance lies. Is we, as a cultural group have become more about our ideals of nationalism mixed with mm-hmm. the gospel than the gospel speaking into nationalism, which I don't think would speak too kindly about nationalism. Right. I have a picture of a church in, in Boise, which will re- uh, remain unnamed. They have a not full size, but a scaled size. So the size of their building, scaled size, Statue of Liberty in the where the fountain out in front of the drive-up, drop-off area of the church, uh, the, the overhang to drop, you know, those that are, that need um, assistance or whatever into the church. Right in front of that, there is a huge Statue of Liberty to scale size, the size of their building in front of the church. That's one I've not seen before. And I, I, I know I've never seen it. My friend's uh, friend, Martin sent it from Boise to me. And I was just shocked when I saw it, because if you know, what's written on the bottom of the statue of Liberty, mm-hmm. <laughs> that probably doesn't match what values is going on inside right. those walls. Bring, Bring, bring me your all, tired huddled masses your, yes yeah <laughs> so okay well i think i think that on a national level the church has gotten themselves especially the evangelical world has gotten themselves in a huge amount of trouble over the years when we um joined the moral majority that then bent itself to a party to a republican yeah. party that moral majority then um, sides itself with some signature ideas and there's only few of those signature ideas that as long as those remain intact those that moral majority will uh, or christian right will remain with a republican ideal uh the the challenge when it comes to politics and morality is when politics try to regulate morality or morality tries to regulate politics are two different kingdoms. There's two different ideas there. There's not, they don't marry one another. And so the idea of abortion, I'm pro-life from birth to death. I do not believe in the death penalty. I don't believe, believe in I don't agree with the death penalty. Uh, so I'm pro-life from, from birth to death, yet I'm looking at the pro-life idea. I'm like, where are the supporting services that will help a single mom or somebody right. that is pregnant? Where are the services? Where's the support? Where's the care? Where's the adoption services, the foster care, whatever is needed around that person, even to carry a baby to full term. So really what the moral majority in Christianum is actually saying is they're not pro-life 
because usually they believe in the death penalty. They're only pro fetus. And as long as like, like that is intact, then everything else is going to work itself out. And if you've lived for five minutes, you know that it takes a lot more than just a hope and a prayer to make the world go around. And and so what thoughts and prayers, thoughts and (laughs) prayers, thoughts and prayers. I know you got pregnant thoughts and prayers. So, so the idea that, that, we're not doing the hard work for the supporting mm-hmm. services. So that's what happens when, when the moral majority attaches itself to a political voting body and that voting body is making decisions about the moral ideas or the moral majority. So it's really a difficult uh, season, I think, ever since probably... Well, Jerry Falwell Sr., I'm of that. I'm old enough now to say, oh, yeah, I, I knew that guy. Or I didn't know him, but <clears throat> but I knew of him. And so that idea of moral majority and then into the Reagan years um, with the Christian right, captivating Christian right. Because Carter was a Christian. He was a Bible school teacher for still is. Sunday school. He still is a Sunday school teacher. Um, very pro women very pro what what you would consider now progressive ideas mm-hmm. so the left if you could say it that way the left had the christian majority and at some point then the capitalistic more right uh got the got the moral majority so so that's we got we're challenged with some things there but the church then expresses something you can be a christian if so this is a christian nationalistic view you can be a christian if you're a republican you're anti-gay you are anti-abortion you are pro-death penalty but that kind of wavers you can be an anti-death penalty and be still be okay um no women in the pulpit give me another one anti-gay i said that one did I already say that one? Pro gun. Pro gun. But you know, there's some but but definitely pro Second Amendment. Yeah. I think pro private private property is a big one, but not everybody has the language to acknowledge that one. Right. So if you are pro those things in this Christian nationalism, we can we then would say, okay, you're, you're a Christian, you're okay. And if you falter on one of those, then it puts your Christianity into question. So if you falter on the second an amendment, my, you know, my view of the second amendment, um, let it out of the bag. I'm not pro gun. I think there needs to be regulation and strict regulation around. I mean, I have to take a driver's test and get a driver's license to drive a car, so I think I should have to at least do something to get and have strict restrictions around certain things and certain guns should be illegal, but that's a different subject for a different day. But, but, you know, there's, there's then such, such a plethora of other issues that if you falter on one of those issues, then somebody puts your Christianity in question. Right. And especially with the threat of hell hanging over you, there's, there's a lot of power in that situation. Oh Yeah. Speaking of hell, something we talked about actually this morning was a power play of churches 
is to speak about end times. Mm-hmm. Um, and such a subject that we don't know about, but then to throw on like the, the false prophecy of mm-hmm. rapture theory and millennialism, all these, all these things that really have driven church movements and growths over last couple hundred years. Cause it's a fairly new theology that Darbyism. came out Darbyism out of the 1640s. Um, but the, it is a very power play aggressive move to start talking about pro end times, especially from the pulpit because people want out. And so they're trying to search for that out and you gave them that out instead of helping them cope with here. Right. Right. And when you provide something that feels certain people feel secure. Yep. So the sin of certainty, it's actually a book by Peter ends. So the sin is it Peter ends. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Peter ends the sin of certainty. Yeah. So that idea of certainty definitely, definitely takes away the wonder, the mystery, the creative, the, it takes away really the nature and the, the goodness of God. Um, when you're, when you're, when you try to be so certain that nothing else can be. Yeah. Right. Nothing else can, nothing else can be valid, I guess. Yeah. So there's no other, this list of, and it's a growing list. So it, it grew, I think in the last couple of years, definitely it grew that list to be uh, a, in order to be a Christian, the, you have to, yeah. yeah, you have to like be these things. And if you're not, and you're sitting in the congregation and you're listening to something, you're like, wow, I like my friend Ben this morning is like, can I even bring my friend here? Cause that they're not gonna, they're not gonna chime into that. I mean, that's just doesn't like, fly in this so so he's sitting there in congregations going i don't know i don't know if i can even invite my friend to this congregation because it is so here's your list type of thing um i think that's a that's the form of spiritual abuse that is common spiritual abuse is one of those i mean it's a real thing it's definitely thrown around there to define a lot of things Um, but I would say that propositionalism and putting people under propositions, you have to believe this in order to be a Christian. Jesus plus plus stuff. Yeah. That's kind of Mm -hmm. our thing. Uh, or it's not our thing. It's our language we use for that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no Jesus plus anything else is, is abusive. Yeah. Hey, let's get into our biblical ideas because we're never going to make it. (laughs) out of our introduction. (laughs) All right. So we just left this book of Exodus and Exodus is empire. Exodus is power play. Exodus is power, power, power. And the powers, the true, Mm -hmm. the true power, Yahweh power doing battle with Satan, uh, other powers and with the empire. So the, so the conclusion of Exodus was 
written in exile and the book of Exodus would, would have been understood by the people receiving the book of Exodus. And it, since it was penned in exile, they would have fully understood it as to be a, I'm not going to use code language, but a metaphor illustration, a pointing towards Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire. So if you take that forward and talk about how Jesus then circumvented powers in the New Testament, it gets really interesting. So Jake brought up this profound idea of the leaders like, like listening to or hearing about or witnessing Jesus turning water into wine, being the first miracle, water into blood, that would have been a signal back to the book of Exodus. Yeah. That's profound. That's really good stuff. So, uh, so and right the leaders there, knew what was coming next because they knew what Exodus was about. Right. And what was coming next was salvation, the year of Jubilee mm-hmm. out of, out of bondage, slavery, prison, debt, all the things that you can think of the year of Jubilee, um, the captives set free, uh, that, that that's what Jesus was, was actually alluding to. That's why the leaders got afraid. So when they feel threatened, there sure is proposition, not proposition. Yep. I don't want to call it that statement. If her theory is correct, that when we feel threatened, we engage power. So what did the Pharisee Sadducees do? They teamed up. Totally. Why did they do that? Well, I mean, ultimately what I was looking for is they killed Jesus. Oh, <laughs> so, that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It became I mean, friends. We're laughing about that, but it's like, it's, <laughs> we didn't think of that. That's why we're laughing. Um, so yeah, ultimately they, when they feel threatened, they engage power and the power that they have was to. to well, they didn't have that power actually. Right. What they manipulated. Together. Super interesting. That mm-hmm. On your whole dilemma too, that they expressed power they didn't even have, and they still got it done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how did Jesus circumvent power systems with women? What was the power system with women? Women were not, not equal in society. Yeah. So um, property. There's this story of the woman at the well um, and Jesus has a conversation with her. He asks her to draw water from the well for him because he was thirsty. Um, And she's just stunned that he's talking to her. Yeah. Because you didn't do that. No. In public. Right. Mm-hmm. I think about Mary and Martha mm-hmm. and how the whole story of Mary and Martha is, is grossly misunderstood. <laughs> so Martha's in the kitchen and doing the kitchen things and doing the dishes angry at Mary because Mary is just sitting at Jesus's feet and, 
And it's thought of as, well, Mary is just sitting in Jesus' feet. So the common sermon is, are you Mary or are you Martha? Are you a right. doer or are you a beer? Are you one that like does all the work but needs to rest at the feet of Jesus? And I think that there's some things to that. But that is a circumventing story of power when it comes to the position of women, how they were being mm-hmm. treated. So Mary is actually in the male part of the house. So if you can imagine having a house, this is something that we don't understand. And to get anachronistic on that and try to impose our modern ideas on ancient things, that's, we can't do that. We just have to look at it for what it is. I didn't, I, I didn't create the system. Uh, I can tell you the system. Let's put it that way. There was mm-hmm. men part of the house. There was women part of the house and the men part of the house. <laughs> that's where Jesus was. And Mary was not supposed to be in that room. She shouldn't have been in that room. She should have been in the Martha part of the house. And she wasn't, she was invited to sit with Jesus in the male part of the house. That's the story. It's kind of like the woman at the well, people get hung up on, well, he did say, go and sin no more, <clears throat> but we forget that <laughs> he shouldn't have been even talking to her in the first right. place. <laughs> so, so hmm, yeah, that's one of those, we gloss over the, the contextual importance of what's happening. Go ahead. Sharon. What I think about, um, I think it's just a passing verse in Luke that it talks about uh, women who funded Jesus' ministry. Oh, yeah. You didn't have a whole lot of options to be a wealthy woman in Jesus' right. time. Yeah, mostly inherited, probably. Yeah, your options Somehow. are it's either inherited or you're a sex worker. Right. Yeah. Any other thoughts there, Jake, on Jesus and women circumventing system? Um, if you look at the first tellers of the gospel, yep. uh, mm-hmm. two women, I think that mm-hmm. that circumvents the power that men should be the ones that, that, uh, that told the story. Mm-hmm. The, I think every time that she was interacting with a woman, it was to, to give value. Mm-hmm to and you you also have to place over it a layer of commerce that Jesus wasn't taking away their means of of living and so i think one reason that we look at that uh, story at the the well one with the well is that she was a prostitute mm-hmm. and so being careful with with going and sinning no more that is that's a tricky a tricky uh subject but to the woman touching jesus's uh coattails and the blood Mm -hmm. healed um jesus took the unclean the outside and put and put them back into the center of society Yeah. So what do they call it? 
I know it's progenitor style, but when a king passes on the kingship to the son, what's the word for that? I was trying to look it up and I can't find it. That may not be a word I know. I don't know it. No. Okay. There's a word. I'll look it up later and, or somebody can look it up now where when a king gives power to the son just because it's the son not in the firstborn son not divine right but it's a divine progenitor styled passing on where you have the king's right because you are the son so stories in uh, ancient literature always were the king passed on the kingship to the son. So I think one of the greatest circumventing stories in the Bible, but in the New Testament in particular and in the Gospels, is the woman, Mary, the focus on Mary having the child. That's not mm. written in other stories. It's always the king crowns the son right. with the glory. Now we have that in the Bible, in the in the gospels, where the king, God, Yahweh, right? God is this Jesus is God's son. We have that, and the spirit impregnates Mary. But the focus of the birth is not, or the focus of even, of even like the life of Christ and the beginning life of Christ is not Joseph. It's not, it's not any of that. It's, it's Mary. Mm-hmm. And then Mary. You're not talking about secession. It's secession. Yeah. Progenitor. I'll, I'll, I'll find out. There's a specific name for it. I can't remember. It's not important to the, to the idea. <laughs> yeah, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. So, so that passing on Mary is of course at the birth. Mary is given the vision. Mary is visited. Mary is the one that, that receives the word. Uh, the male didn't receive the word. It was the female that received the word and the females at the death as well. That's not normal either. And so for the, for the, for Mary to be at the death, it just in literature and narrative and the story of Kings and Queens and princes and princesses, right? The power empire, those stories are Kings pass on the sons, but then who's at the death? I'm not sure where you're going with this was one. That, Go ahead. Was that rhetorical? Do you want us to answer? I, yeah, I want to answer. Who do you think was at the death in in the stories? Are we talking the Bible or the other, just in, other text? Just in general. Oh, okay. Kings and queens, yeah. Take a stab. The mother. No. The son. Because normally she would have been maybe even dead. Dead, yeah. Right, yeah. Who? Go ahead. Take some stabs. The son. 
the daughters. Some wife. I don't know. <laughs> no one. The blacksmith. No one? <laughs> well, I mean, if in modern history and the kings and the and the the castles and the the kingdom, yeah. right, would be all like post, you know, really ancient. And so we're like more into modern history with these right. stories. So it would have been the priest. Mm. Right. Saying the last rites, rites yeah. praying right. the king into Heaven. a new kingdom. Right. So there's no mom involved. There's no sisters. There's the, so this story, this story would uh, just circumvent just because of Mary's involvement. Mm-hmm. So, good. Because there's no rabbi there. There wasn't even a rabbi that believed like in Jesus's story. Like where did, there had to have been one, <laughs> one rabbi that bought into Jesus's story. Not one besides the disciples, I guess. And they all ran and only Mary and John mm-hmm. were, were left. And so, hmm. okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on then to some parables. Jake, why don't you take uh why don't you take the parable of the talents and tell us the real story? There. The real story. Okay. The yeah. Real story. Yeah. Go for it. In Matthew 25, 11. I'm sorry. Hold on. Sorry. Matthew 25, 14. It reads like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who is leaving on a trip. He is called, he called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one, he gave five valuable coins. Another, he gave two and to another, he gave one. He gave to each servant according to their ability. Then he left on his journey. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them. Sorry. You tired? (laughs) sorry, and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants returned to settle accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins. And he said, master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained you five more. His master replied, excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little and I'll put you in charge of much. Come and celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, master, you gave me two valuable coins. Look, I gained two more. His master replied, well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I'll put you in charge of much. Now, come and celebrate with me. Now, the one who had received one valuable coin since uh, came and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man. In some translations, it says a shrewd man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid, and I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. His master replied, you evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown. I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. 
In this case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers so that I would have returned and you could have given me what belongs to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has the most coins, 10 coins. The one who has much will receive even more and they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even a little bit, that they will have be taken away from them. Now take the worthless servant and throw him out into the farthest darkness where people there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. That's the story. Okay, so tell us what most people have interpreted that story as and what is a more... It is a common... Um, less common, I guess. It is a common, yeah. No, it's actually, I think, it's, I, I have not heard of this for a, a long time. It's a common interpretation to to see the, especially to hear the well done, good and faithful servant put on um, at eulogies, right? You want to be called mm-hmm. a good and faithful servant when you step into the, the gates of glory. Um. That is the common thing, and especially like with the Protestant experiment in the United States, those that they receive more will get more. Or those that have more will receive even more, and those that have less will receive even less. And so the, those who don't do well or don't handle their possessions well will get even with less, and those who do will get even more. And so money and, and everything will rise to the top. It's kind of the basic of that. And if you are faithful in God, you will be at that top swath of things. So well done, good and faithful servant. It's hard for me to even speak it that way without some tongue in cheek. Um, the, I believe the, the only way that you can interpret this scripture, if you read through it, is when you read that, and the master even acknowledged it, you have sown you have you have sown seed where you haven't spread and you harvest grain where you haven't sown sorry and you gather crops where you haven't spread seed if you gather and harvest where you haven't planted and sown what is that called stealing theft <laughs> it's called theft <laughs> So you were actually taking over other people's crops and taking from Mm -hmm. them. And then the second trigger point in this passage is the, you should have taken my coin and put it in the bankers where I could have came back and received what was mine with interest. Jesus wasn't talking to the, to the, um, the low level people here. He's talking to the, religious elite i think for their ears especially mm-hmm. because in levitical law in deuteronomy 25 or 23 sorry 23 we're in 25 now in deuteronomy 23 it says never charge interest for your brother for food for shelter or for any type of loan do not charge interest mm-hmm. and so it is it is against israel's law in the torah to charge interest on money. And so any, any good Pharisee that's listening to this, it would have triggered their attention to what is Jesus actually saying? 
and it is a critique of of their economic system where the poor and the needy will only have more taken away from them. And that's a power system. Mm -hmm. And that's the power dynamic and Jesus critiquing the power dynamic. He's not, he's not speaking about how that you should be wise with your talent. Mm -hmm. We play with that word a lot. Mm -hmm. He's not saying that we need to go out and invest our money wisely and to, to really steward what God has given us well and make more money off of it. I think that is the correct right. thing to do. I think to, to not use what God's given you wisely is not a good thing, but to say that it is more righteous to gain a hundredfold on all of your stuff than to live a, a pure life that you didn't want to go out and steal for it. Right. Good. I love that. And I love that interpretation because it's, it's actually very consistent with the, with the gospel narratives and Jesus and how Jesus was trying to usher in that year of Jubilee, which Mm -hmm. meant that those debts would have been paid and there would be no more interest in the year of Jubilee. Yeah. That phrase. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, more having more than he needed um mm-hmm. really stood out to me this time mm-hmm. um because that's not how the kingdom of god is structured yeah we all have enough not more than needed so we have the poor the feeding of the thousands we have the parables of all kinds we have women We have Luke basically all through the book of Acts circumventing power. So sell all your possessions and give them to those Mm -hmm. that are in need is circumventing power. Even meeting in homes and not in the synagogues, circumventing Mm -hmm. power. Just that in and of itself is circumventing power. Um, Paul in the book of Philemon, circumventing power. We look at uh, priesthood of all believers right priesthood of all believers is circumventing power there's so many things that are circumventing power john in revelation all of the book of revelation would have been understood by the people who received it and everything in the book of revelation has to do with the empire of the day which was roman empire and so you think about when the book of revelation was written in the latter traditionally in the latter first century. And so after uh, the temple was destroyed, after Mm -hmm. Caesar Nero, um, Claudius gives Nero the the throne. Nero then is Neron Khazar 666 in Hebrew numerology. You see all kinds of allusions to Roman empire. So the whole book of Revelation is circumventing power uh, I think when did Nero kill himself? Oh gosh, the date it's like fifty fifty two is when he was he was brought into power. So he wasn't. I don't know. I don't, I can't remember who was actually yeah. in power. Nero Claudius Caesar 
was 39, 37 to 68. Okay. So yeah, I thought he was in 52. No. Well, he wasn't 52. Oh, I guess he wasn't 52. Never mind. Okay. So we have the book of revelation, basically circumventing power, but all through the new Testament, we still see this idea of Sabbath mm -hmm. and Sabbath is not circumvented. And so let's take a few moments to talk about Sabbath and what Sabbath actually is and what Sabbath does and what Sabbath can do for us. Let's just take a couple of minutes. Shrey, you want to take it first? Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. The, the word that's been coming up for me lately, um, more so than rest, although rest is a part of it, is the idea of disengagement. Mm. Um, disengagement from a culture or a system or an empire that demands your engagement at all times. Mm -hmm. um, whether that's, you know, the, um, the ancient Hebrews and slavery in Egypt and they're working all day, every day, no more straw, go get your own straw to make bricks all day, every day to make storehouses for Pharaoh to amass wealth. Um, or even that, you know, persistent feeling if we haven't looked at our social media for a few hours and we don't know what's going on in the world, you know, social media demands our engagement as well. We haven't bought um, something on Amazon in a while. Right. <laughs> Amazon is happy to remind you if you haven't. <laughs> um, so I think Sabbath um, has to do with disengaging from these things that in a lot of ways control us, um, that demand our attention and our engagement. Our doom scroll. Yeah. At night before bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Sabbath as resistance then becomes the circumventing of power because mm -hmm. if you're actually resisting something, you're circumventing power. You're, you're putting your, you're cutting off, I guess your contribution to, to the power. Mm -hmm. So whether that be walking to the store, whether that be, uh, not buying certain things at the store and taking some time off from different things. All that could be considered Sabbath, right? Sabbath yeah. from something. And so not, you know, taking a half a day and not participating in the commerce of the day could be an important mm -hmm. practice for you. I think it's different for a lot of different people. As long as we are practicing that disengagement from the powers. I think that yeah. that is the more, the bigger story to Sabbath. Most people think of Sabbath, which it is, it's good for the soul. It rejuvenates us, but I hope we're doing that on a regular basis without God commanding us to do it, that we're actually getting rest, that we have good rhythm. We're getting, you know, proper work and rest balance so in our lives. Something that you said, Kevin, uh, to yeah. go back to it, you said that Sabbath is a disengagement from the powers. 
And I think that Sabbath can also be, and maybe would, would help hone your point a little more, a disengagement as the powers. Keep going. That when, when Expand. we, <laughs> when we rest, yeah. when we disengage as people that hold power, as we are all the white on this screen, um, yeah, we do have power uh, in there. Yeah. If we rest, we allow those on the outside on the tertiary to also rest. And so yeah. if you look who's working on a Sunday, those are not usually the, the cultural elites. And so if, right. it says just say Sunday, right? Because that's the traditional Sabbath of of our American system. Um, but if we, if we disengage as the powers, then we allow rest of others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I just think of myself. I've always been kind of hippie on the inside and I always think the man is after me. So, <laughs> so, so I'm the man. I, I'm the man. I'm not the man. <laughs> yeah, I'm the man. Okay, I get that. Yeah. I don't want to be the man. The man's always after me. So I have to like, you know, take some time off from the man. Right. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I get it. Yeah. So no, no, my role is I am a boss. I am, I employ people. I do have staff. Um, in some marketplace ministry commerce that we do. And so definitely, definitely, thank you. Disengaging from being a power and therefore giving staff and the people around me rest um, as well. So just the side note to conclude. Is this your surprise? Yeah, I told the I told my my uh, leaders here that we were going to have a surprise in the end. It's not really a surprise; it's like common, like knowledge. <laughs> this is the reason why the church is dropped in attendance, right here. So we we think that we think that people are walking away from the church. Uh, because of maybe they are deconstructing or they are like whatever falling away or they want to go out and sin <laughs> whatever right <laughs> from springa yeah <laughs> out there but honestly uh the power of the church and the power dynamics in the church mm -hmm. is the signature mark of why somebody can't find space to deconstruct, like somebody can't feel space to share emotion, why people can't question science and religion. They can't like, there, there's all of the reasons why people leave church, but we've had so many like percentage drops over the last really handful of years, over the last 20 years, 30% drops and Barna statistics. If you look at those, it's just astronomical. The amount of people that have walked away. Um, and most of it can be found within this conversation of power is the church is structured in a power 
And my theory is that most people walk away because that is life sucking. Like there's a, there's a, there's a consuming uh, mentality and, and we think that the attenders are consumers and that's, that's our mistake. The, the old joke, I guess, was, well, we built the church like a business and then we wake up one day 20 years later and we discovered that all the parishioners are consumers. Well, that's not fair because the power structure of the church that is built consumes. And so there's a, there's a consuming nature to the church that I think over the last 20 years, people have really really burned out, worn, worn out. Pastors have left. See you later. There's been just an exodus of pastors, exodus of people over the last 20 years. And over the last two, since all the shutdowns and closures throughout our country, we'll see how we emerge out of that. Really, those statistics will come out, I'm sure, over the next handful of years. How many people actually returned after shutdowns, after COVID, after pandemic, whatever, uh, we'll see if people actually came, came back and who's coming back and how church then has taken on a new shape. There's a very specific thing that I wanted to bring up though, is that is the generation Z crowd. Now I'm generation X and you would think that there would only be Y and then Z, but they threw in a millennial in there. And so there's generational millennials and I don't know if there's a couple of halvesies in there of generations, but uh, Generation X is the forgotten generation. The only thing that we contributed to the world is Nirvana, so which was awesome. But grunge <laughs> music, but uh, but Generation oh God, Z, enough. when they're surveyed, Generation Z has come statistically out and basically have said that the structures of the church, the power of the church, the power dynamics of the church are just not for them. We've accused Generation Z of walking away from God. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're just walking away from God. And that's actually not true. There's a new term, old new term out there called ex-evangelical. And the idea of being ex-evangelical is not finding yourself in the evangelical system. Yet in Generation Z, the categories of, are you Protestant? Are you Catholic? Are you Methodist? Are you any of the denominations and any of the evangelical system? They're not checking any of those boxes. Mm -hmm. The box that the Christian Generation Z is checking in all the surveys is spiritual, not religious. That's the box. And so now we yeah. have an entire generation. Now, you know, us old people are looking at that going, well, that's not Christian. And, <laughs> and so we say things like that to you. Well, they're just young and dumb, right? Um, they'll figure it out eventually. Honestly, I think that we're in for a big surprise of what the new post-Covidian era of church is going to really look like when the emergence of the generation Z is to take on leadership and those are going to be our next preachers. And those are going to be our next 
leaders, what the church is actually going to look like. It's not going to look like, I don't think, anything. So the idea that Generation Z is disinterested is far from the truth. They're actually very interested in spiritual ideas, just not in ideals. They're very interested in spiritual practices. They're not interested in spiritual praxis, church praxis, maybe spiritual practices, but not church praxis, Mm. especially church polity. And so this idea that they're disinterested is actually uh, worlds away from, from the truth. Um, They pray, they participate in spiritual ideas on the internet. They join spiritual groups. They might do a little yoga, who knows, drink some green tea. I have no idea, but they are doing things that are spiritual. That's just outside of, uh, so I'm really thankful that we have sound healing at, at our building and we do yoga at our building and all these, all these things. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll, uh, we'll see something emerge and the digital church definitely is going to become stronger over the years to come. We might not find that strong right now, but definitely it will become stronger as we reach new generations of people. And it's because of the power dynamics in church has pushed people basically to the back walls and eventually out the door. And us as leaders have never wanted to admit that. We've always Mm -hmm. accused the parishioner from Mm -hmm. running away. The parishioner is the consumer. And if we didn't play the right music, they ran away, things like that. It's just, Mm -hmm. I think that those are false self inebriating ideas to satisfy our lies about our own failures of creating power dynamics within structures called the church. Yep. It's great. Good job. Did I lose you guys? No, nope. there. I can't hear you anymore because obviously <laughs> I hope you heard that whole thing. Did everyone hear that uh-huh. whole thing? Good. Yeah. All right. If anyone, I can't hear anything anymore because of my ear pods are now dead. <laughs> so we'll close with that. Thanks you guys for joining us, having this discussion and have a wonderful, wonderful night. Thanks for being with us tonight. Yeah. Good night, everybody. Thank Good you. Night.